0: We are are back. We're going back to Matthew not to torture you, uh, to think we're starting from here and going forward again, but uh, we are in a great passage, and we're going to look at uh, not just like the six verses, but we're going to look at like half the chapter because I want us to put it together to see something for us in our series here at Church, uh, Peacemaking Church. Um. So I want to remind you guys what we're going through right now. We, we are, we're talking about a peacemaking church. And if you're wondering, why are we going through this? I, I don't have, we don't see any wars going on in here. You guys, we, we don't just preach because something has been happening. We also preach in God's Word because we want to prepare ourselves in case it happens, right? And do conflicts ever happen in the church, of course they do, because <laughs> there's people like me in the church, right? It's, it's okay. I, I do that. I kind of lob softballs up there, don't I? You just hit them. <laughs> so, so we are we are looking at a at this passage, and actually this passage ha, doesn't have the word peace in it at all. But we're talking about what kind of church is a peacemaking church, and today's passage is going to help us understand what a community. Uh, looks like, that Christ has called his community to be where peace will reign if we follow what he has prescribed for us. Okay, so today is a, a broader look. And again, to remind you where we've been, part one, real peace is founded on God and the work of Christ. Okay, that's where it all starts. The peace the Bible talks about, the peace that is lasting, the peace that satisfies, the peace that we our hearts truly long for is only provided by God and bought for us by Jesus Christ. So we looked at the first week. The second week is we understand that when we display peace in a church over the long haul and how we resolve conflicts and how we love each other and how we, you know, we have different personalities, different opinions, how we interact with each other is a huge testimony to a world that's at war with God and at war with each other, both individually and internationally, right? It has a huge testimony. So we must, we must evidence it in our church. Uh, Real peace also, that's what we looked through, part three was, it starts with owning our part in conflict. So now that one we kind of jump down into individual peace and peace in relationships. And if there's conflict in the body, where's the first place we got to start? Right here. Not right there. No, not just me, Sonny. We all have to point the picture or point the finger at ourselves, right? What is, what is it? Why are there wars and conflicts among you, James says? Is it not you? Your passions are out of control and you want what you want. I want what I I have a wanting heart and that's what gets me into trouble. It's what gets all of us into trouble. But confession is the first part saying, you know what? I need to own my part in all this. Then the next week, we had Andrew Rogers, and he talked about that real peace comes when we repent. We not only own our sin, but we want to turn and, and turn away from it, turn towards God. And he called it the surprising joy of repentance. And we looked at Psalm 32, where Dave, David, was. it was his, his testimony of, my goodness, when I did not confess my sin, I was wasting away. I had God's heavy hand on me. But when I... Confessed it, repented, and turned, oh my goodness, the joy of having that reconciliation with God, and we'll add to this, the reconciliation with others. What an amazing peace that can happen. Then last week, we looked at, uh, I called this the humility's harder pill to swallow. It's not, hey, we need, to just, we need to be humble, but we need to be humble enough to hear criticism. Remember that, having a teachable spirit? Oh, man, I struggle with that. Do you? Yeah, so we looked at that last week. And someone was saying, man, Chris, you keep, keep hitting at us with conviction. I'm like, I know, but we have to. <laughs> we have to let God's Word speak to us. Because how many of you want to change and grow and be more, God, more like Jesus? I do. And it's not just because we cruise through and look at all the fun passages in Scripture. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, He takes care of me. Right? We have to look at all of Scripture and let it convict us where we need it because the results of heart surgery, just like Renee, she's had major surgery, but the results were to cut out the cancer and to bring health again, right? And that's what we're trying to do with this. Oh, I forgot to do the update. Renee is doing well, extremely well. She's, I would call her ahead of schedule as far as her ability to be mobile and just amazing. So thank you for your prayers your, you know, constant contact's amazing. You guys are way too kind to us, and the food has been, you guys got to stop, I'm getting fat. <laughs> it's also how I handle stress, but here's the deal. Thank you so much. She's doing so well, and, and we have on the directions, you know, I, I listed out all these things for April, and she did a great job, put on email. the email. The thing that's on there about, you know, don't stop and stay for a long time, that's for the initial parts, in, and it, sometimes when you come, she is actually asleep, and so it's it's so that you don't feel offended if she doesn't come down to say hi. But I mean, like at our life group, Renee was awake, and so several several went up to say several girls. Only girls are allowed in our bedroom. You know, <laughs> but the ladies went up. Some of them talked to her, and it was she was really blessed by that. So thank you guys. She's doing really well. So so back to this. Back to this. Um, so last week was the teachable spirit part. That's the part I really got to work on. Maybe some of you are like me. But this week, we're now moving in uh, to to talk about a a church where peace reigns. And so I wanted to go to where Jesus has his longest portion in Scripture where he actually talks about his community and what it's supposed to look like. See, we we have, for instance, in Matthew, we saw him giving discourses on what his kingdom is like and how you get in the Sermon on the Mount, what his people should look like. But we have in Matthew 18 a really... A detailed discourse from Jesus about his community, what his citizens will not only act like to the world, but live how they'll live with each other. So we're going to look at the first 21 verses or 22 verses of Matthew 18 this morning and see some little chunks there. And you have it there in the outline. and And we're doing more of a a broader look. 22 verses. I can't be as detailed, but I want us to catch the segments uh, all the way through of how we're supposed to listen and learn, okay? So that's where we're at this morning. But here's the deal. I want us to, to understand, too, that here he, he's not, he doesn't say the word church until verse 15, actually verse 17, okay? But this is all talking about the community of his people, and, and we need to understand how God sees his people, We are His people. We are united to each other. We are united in Christ, and we are His family. Okay, that that picture of family is going to make all the difference in how we walk through this this passage, all right? Um, So we're going to be looking, let's just hop right into, instead of me talking about it all the time, let's read Matthew 18, 1 through 22. So at that time, okay, the time being... Peter and, and Jesus had just had this interaction. Do we have to pay the temple tax? They're in Capernaum. Capernaum is Peter's place where he lives. Okay? He, that's where he lived, and he had a family there. And it was also Jesus' main headquarters for most of his three years of ministry. It was there at Capernaum, the north part of Galilee. Okay, And, and his, he's just come from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was only with three disciples, Peter, James, and John. All right? So it's at this time that this is happening. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. They had showed up on the scene. They, the other nine had been gone, and now they all reconnected. They came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, where did this topic come from? Well, in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 38, we find out they had been bickering. They were jealous that only three got to go to the Mount, you know, off with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. They were jealous, and now they're starting to war with each other. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Was that a good, legitimate question? No, they had pride at the root of this. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So here's Jesus' response. And calling to himself a child, and this is probably, some say, Peter's child. He had a mother in law that lived there, it means he was married. He probably is his child. It's probably at his house. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. It actually says that he picked him up in, in Luke, or I think it's Luke, that he was holding him in his hands. And he said, truly, and whenever you see that, that's the word amen. And he's trying to make a point. Either it's behold or truly. Whenever you see that, pay attention. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn, that word means convert. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, this is a salvation thing he just said. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone. These things weighed around 300 pounds at least. Fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Is he being serious here? Absolutely. He's using using hyperbole, but he's making his point very clear. He ain't messing around. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Is he messing around here? No. "'See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, pay attention, "'Pay attention.'" He rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Wow. The particular, protective, pursuing love of God for a stray sheep. How different than how we treat somebody who strays from our church, who might be caught in sin, Look at what the father's heart is. Isn't that funny? Gosh. If your brother, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three, or three two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. He's not talking about a Bible study here. He's talking about the context of pursuing and confronting sinning sheep and trying to gain them back into the family of God. It's not a prayer meeting he's talking about here. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? He thought he was really cool in saying that. Look how godly I am. Because again, the Pharisees said, You only have to forgive somebody who sinned against you three times. That's God. Then the rest you don't have to forgive them. Peter's saying, Oh, seven times. He thought he was going way above, right? But here's what Jesus says Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 t- seven times, or seven times 70. Yeah, well, we might not look at <laughs> Revelation 12 today. <laughs> so, so here's our passage. Here's what he says about his community. I actually, when I introduced verses 21 and 22 about forgiveness, Jesus goes on to illustrate it with the parable. I'm not going to read the parable, but that is part of this. His community is to be characterized like this. And we're going to walk through what each one of those things means because we want to be a church that is a truly caring church in the ways that Jesus prescribes for us, right? Again, Jesus only said church twice. That we have recorded once in Matthew 16, when Peter was asked, what's the confession of the church or what's the great confession? And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's the statement I'm going to build my church on. That's the confession of the church. It's about Jesus Christ. Then the second time he mentions church is right here. And what is this passage? It's how to confront sin, somebody who's caught in sin, and how to try to restore them to the body. How many churches actually do this? Because there's four steps, and we have some stuff in between we'll talk about really quickly. But uh, one of these passages is neglected by the most part of the American church. And and so we want to walk through and say, this is what Jesus commands of his church. And then say, okay, how can we get better at it, okay? So this is not a Conviction Sunday, well, we're in the Word, it will be. <laughs> but it really is, how can we grow in this, all right? So let me pray, we've read, and so let me pray, and then we'll all start walking through the rest of it. Lord, thank you that we have your words recorded for us. Our Savior, our King, our Redeemer, our Master. You're the head of, our, of the church. You're, you're the one who is the preeminent one. And Lord, you, when you lay out all this about your community, your church, and how we're to interact with each other, God, I pray that we would take this to heart and always ask: not, am I doing just enough? But Lord, how can we grow and be more like what you've called us to be? More faithful. So, Lord, thank you. And as we walk through this, I pray that you'd uh, just open our eyes, that in Spirit, that you'd instruct our hearts, and, and you know. Challenge us and convict us where we need it, but also encourage and strengthen us too. So thank you, Lord, for what we have ahead. And, and we just pray that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the, the big context is that the, the, the disciples are fighting with each other. They're just like you and me. They struggle with pride. And at this point, Jesus is saying, he's, there's been a major turning point. He says, he's now going to start heading towards Jerusalem. And he keeps saying, well, I'm going to go there and die. They don't get that. They they think he's going towards Jerusalem again. He says it very clearly, but they keep thinking, oh, the kingdom's about to happen here. And, and when the kingdom happens, and he's the king, I want a position. Matter of fact, James and John even had somebody ask for him. Who was it? Their mom. <laughs> Come on, guys. But you know what? All the disciples struggle with this, and they're bickering about it. So that's the context. They are playing out for us what we talked about a few weeks ago, James 4. What causes the conflicts and quarrels among you? Is it not your passions that are out of control? That's exactly that selfish ambition going on, right? So that's, that's the context. And so he has to help them see things a little bit differently. He, he, he uses this, this, this as an opportunity to lay out the kind of people that get into his kingdom And the kind of people and how they live with each other to show the world what his kingdom people look like, his community, his church, okay? So first of all, and we see in verses uh, 1 through 6, a truly, I'm going to just, I keep saying this is a truly caring church, is characterized by humility. That word keeps coming up all the way through this series on peace, Right? If you don't have humility, you won't have peace. Where there's pride, there's poison. Where there's pride, there's destruction. There's lack of unity. There's division. We must have humility towards each other. Okay? So let's walk through this. First of all, we have pride's poison. That's real simple. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Their pride was not going to make them unified with each other in their relationship, and they would not be unified in purpose because the purpose is to make disciples and to die for others. As a Christian, you exist to serve others, to die to self, to deny myself, to follow Jesus and help others know him. That's our driving purpose. That means you cannot have pride. I cannot have pride. And that's why we're confronted by this passage, because that is the poison A church characterized by prideful people is a poisonous church and will not be unified and will not last and will not have a witness to the community. Because you know what? We'll look just like the world. That's what we'll look like. Then we have, but he does give the antidote, but he shows it, right? He has an illustration for them that here's humility's antidote to the poison. And calling to himself a little child... This could have been an infant or a toddler that was in the midst of him. He holds up the baby and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, and that word is the word for conversion. So he's talking about salvation here. Unless you humble yourself like this little child and be like this little child, you will never, listen to this, never enter the kingdom. That's pretty scary. How many of you want to be in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, me too. Because if you're not in the kingdom of heaven, where are you going? Yeah. The <laughs> well, I shouldn't laugh at that, but that was but the pit, hell, because that's what he says here just a later on, doesn't he? The fiery hell. I mean, that's scary. So this is important. He's holding up a little child, and the point of how holding up a little child is when an infant is in his arms. We have little Ray Ray, right, being held. You know, with a little cart, but are you being held? I'm sure at times you hold her, right? We all have our children. You hold your little child. And, and that child, what can that child do for themselves? Hmm? Sucker thumb, maybe. <laughs> yeah. None of the stuff that would help them survive or flourish, right? That's our role as parents. But here's the deal, they, to help them do that. But here's the deal. They, they are needy. They are dependent. They're not vying for position over anyone else. They just need mom and dad. Again, we're talking about a little infant here. Will they start displaying sin attributes and all that? Well, of course they will as they get older. And they'll start doing all the stuff that mom and dad do and the rest of us do. But here's the deal. He's using this as an illustration of humility. Here's the disciples, these adults, doing what? Bickering and fighting. He's saying, look, you guys, you guys have to change. It's kind of scary because if you don't, you will never what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only is humility illustrated by this child, but it's also the key to salvation, to enter, to humble. And when you humble yourself before God so you can get into the kingdom, what does that mean? Because, by the way, there is no one formula that says this is the formula on how you get to be saved. Jesus says it several ways. He uses it right here. But there's also, you know, if you Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's different ways. John 3. How does Jesus tell Nicodemus to be saved? You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. So there's different illustrations in Scripture of what it means to be saved, but each of them mean the same thing. And here he's emphasizing humility. What kind of humility do you need to have before God? Hmm? Like a child, which means that you are admitting your absolute need. I'm going to hell without you, God. I need your help. I have sins that I am going to be punished for. I don't deserve heaven You are absolutely total on your knees before God saying, I deserve hell, and there's no way I can get there on my own. Please, God, I need you. I need you, Jesus, to die for my sin, because I know where I'm going, and I know I can't earn it myself. And then you also understand, look, once I'm saved, I still have to live by faith. Because the life I live, I no longer live for myself, but I live for Him who died for me, Galatians 2.20. We have died with Christ. It's a faith walk, folks. I mean, trials are, you know, a great time. Well, not great, but you know what I mean. A great learning time in our lives. Renee and I have been walking through it with you all of teaching us what a faith walk is all about. There's a lot that we have no control over. And yet God says, keep following me. Do you trust me? We say, yeah. It's hard to say, yeah, but he teaches us. So we need God. That's what a humble person says we need. There is not one person in this universe who can say, ah, uh, got, I've got it all taken care of. I'm in heaven on my own merits. No, you're not. The Bible is clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What happens if you fall short of the glory of God and you stand before God after you die? Where do you go on your own merits, go to hell. A great question to ask somebody, and, and I've asked this at different times different people. Let me ask you, if you were to stand, let's say there's a, a hypothetical scene, you come to, you die, and now you're standing before God, and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer is going to mean everything. And I've heard people say, well, compared to others, I'm okay, and I've tried to be a good person. And every time they start with I, I tell them, you're wrong. And, oh, that's mean, Chris. You shouldn't say this. I said yes, I should, because if I really love them, I tell them they're wrong because I, I, they need to know the only way you can stand before a holy God and actually be led into His heaven is when you point to Jesus and say, He's the only reason I can come in. He is. He is. He is the perfect one. He died for my sin. I don't deserve to go in. God, I deserve hell. But you know what? Jesus died for my sin. And you know what? I can stand before you, the holy God, because not only has he paid for my sin, but he's also given me his righteousness, it says. There's a great exchange that happened. He took my sin, but gave me his righteousness. And since I'm in Christ, I can stand before the holy, righteous God without being killed. And I can get into heaven because of Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's how much he loves you and me. Right, so that's that's, what we're talking, that's humility's answer. It's the key to salvation, but it's also the key to blessing. Check this out. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Doesn't it say that, that God rewards humbleness? We looked at it in James 4, verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace to the person who humbles himself. He opposes the proud, but if you humble yourself, he'll give you more grace. How you want more of his grace every day? And then it says in James 4, 10, that he says, whoever humbles himself will be... Exalted. What? It means He'll lift you up. It means He'll bless you. So humility is the antidote to the poison of pride. It's the key to being saved. It's the key to salvation. It's the key to getting God's blessing. How many of you want that? Me too. (laughs) And then verses 5 and through 6, we see humility's heart. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Real quickly, is he only talking about young Christians who are immature or young in age, or is he talking about all Christians? It is all because how do you get into the kingdom of heaven if you are all like these little ones? So if you are a Christian, Jesus now has a protective care for you, and he calls the church to have that same protective care. That's what he's saying here. To receive and love and care for another believer is to receive Christ himself, is what Jesus is saying. That's how much he cares for each one of us. To, be his, to, to truly be His kind of church, we must welcome and love all believers. We belong to Him, and we belong to each other. Do you understand that? When I say small church, big family, and I keep talking about family, 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 you guys understand that? It is more true of you that you are my family than my own blood family. My blood family, if they're not Christians, we are not going to be together for eternity. But you and me, who are Christians, we are family in the truest eternal sense. So anyone who walks in this door and comes to this church regularly and calls us their church home, that is my family. Any person who is truly a Christian goes to any church in this area, anywhere around the world. It's truly my family. I met a gal named Shannon yesterday at the parade. Oh, I go to this church here, and oh, this is awesome. That's yeah, so cool. I've heard about your church. Yeah, I'm praise God. I said, hey, sister. I could call her that, not because it's a, a sweet phrase to say, but she is my sister. I knew her. I talked to her for less than five minutes, but that's a sister I'm going to spend eternity with. We're going to spend eternity with each other. That means we have to truly care for each other now with a protective caring, love. Look what he says. If someone causes one of these little ones to sin, what is Christ serious? How serious is he? If we bring sin into the body and cause others to stumble, that's, he's saying, boy, you better take that seriously. We have to hear his warning. We are to care for each other in such a way to see each other grow in godliness and to remove any and all obstacles to that growth. We should care that each other is growing. We have to hear his seriousness. Jesus, our King, Savior, Lord, Shepherd is not playing here. This is a severe warning. This kind of protective, loving, caring church family are what we are called to be all the time. Now, my personality is to joke around a lot. That's just kind of my default. I'm kind of goofy that way. But you need to know when it comes to anything serious, I will stand up for you and fight for you. I have to be careful because I get really mad. Because I care for you. And I know that you care for me. We care for each other. I mean, man, if someone ever... I don't care if people make fun of me or get mad at me. But when they get mad or say something about my kids or my wife, whoo, baby, I get mad. <laughs> but it's the same about you. I've heard people say about things about you at different times. I'm sure you've heard things they say things about me. You know what I do first? Are you sure about that? See, I know them. I love them. Be careful. Because we've got to care for each other. Even the Dylans and the Barriers. All of you. We love each other. Right? So we need to have this kind of protective love. And then he goes on. He's not done. <laughs> He's making some serious points. At, look at what he says here. To be a truly caring church, we have to have a protective purity in this body. Verses 7 through 9, woe to, the, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now, that's just part of the world. There are temptations to sin, but look what he says here. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Oh, now he's boiling it down. How uh, Temptations will come from the world, but also it comes through people, and it can come through people where? In the church. Because okay? remember, we all struggle with sin at different times. None of you is perfect. I'm not perfect. And there be, could be a time where you're struggling with sin. You're being a little bit lax and lazy in your faith. And it can incite in me a desire to sin. Or I might be that, and I might incite in you a desire to sin. And Jesus is saying, look, you guys, you, you have to be careful. You have to be thinking so much about your church and, and how you're affecting the spiritual health and well-being and growth of each other. We are not individual people just having to come to church. We are part of this body. We own each other. and We love each other. And we have to serve each other and care for how each other is doing spiritually. That's why small groups is so important. Because here we can hide our sin, can't we? Anywhere you're in a group of, you know, 30 or more, it's easy to just, yeah, I'm fine. And you can kind of hide your sin. But it's when you get into smaller groups over the long haul that you start seeing It's really easy, by the way, to see each other's sin, right? Maybe not to see your own, but it's easy to see others, right? But you need to be in a small group so they see your own, and they can help you, and you can help them. We have to have a protective purity. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire, the pit of hell. Patrick. Patrick. And if, your chi, if your, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Man, he is using some graphic imagery that we have to take seriously. And by the way, what is, he, what is this technique he's using here? It's called hyperbole. He's going to the extreme, but it's not to just say, oh, he's being funny to make a point. No, he is being serious to make a serious point. There is to be a desire for purity individually. If, you're, if you have a, a sin, an unconfessed sin, you need to deal with it. Isolate it, cut it out. It, there's a term called, it's called radical amputation. We use that in biblical counseling. It's to cut out that sin. If you struggle, it can, this is a silly illustration, but it'll give you an example. If, if you struggle with drinking... Alcoholism is your deal. You have to be careful of, you know, being a... And you go and you're driving to work and coming home from work around the same route, and there's that alcohol store that you used to go to to get your alcohol. You know what Jesus would tell you? You know what? You need to take another route to get to work and to come home. You need to avoid the temptations. Cut out the temptations. Okay, that's a silly illustration, but think about your own habitual sin. Each one of you has Habitual sins that you are prone to do. doesn't mean you're doing them right now, but in your weakness, you'll fall back into them. Why? Because we're habitual creatures and we're all weak at different places. So think about that personally. What is a sin that you need to cut out of your life? And you need to take drastic measures. Again, when I became a Christian, this is a real easy illustration, I dropped all my friends because we were all collectively really good at mischief and getting in trouble and getting evil. And they would tell you the same. Half of them are pastors now. (laughs) We disbanded and then reformed friendships later after we got ourselves right with the Lord Jesus. But that was important for me because I'm a very social person. I needed to make new godly friends who could help me on my path towards growing in godliness. I had to cut out certain things. And that's not the only one. There's a lot to cut out in my life. But that's what he's saying. But he also says we're supposed to do this as a church. This is the desire for purity, for holiness. And we're supposed to watch out for the temptations outside, but also watch out for the temptations inside and make sure I'm not the one bringing in the temptations for others in my church. Because I love them, I own them, I'm responsible for how they change and grow. And you are for mine. And you are, everyone look to the person next to you. Just look around. You all, we all own each other, not just husbands and wives. I saw that, Ed. It's not just husbands and wives. It's all of us. And he says, woe to the one who temptations come in through. We have to think about that as a church. That's why if you know that there's conflict in the body and Chris Brunziel doesn't know about it, nor Scott or Patrick, the elders of the church, if there's conflict and there's sin going on, you need to do something about it because temptation is in the church. It's a serious deal. Matter of fact, in the early church, there were temptations going on. Acts chapter is it 5 or 6, Ananias and Sapphira. Everyone's, everyone is you know, trying to help each other. This new community of the church is forming the first few weeks of the church. And some were being ousted from their homes and they needed help because their families were kicking them out because they were becoming followers of Jesus. And so some people are, you know, helping them and, and all that. And some people are selling property to give to the elders to make, or to the disciples to help, you know, make sure people are being taken care of. And so here comes along Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, we've got property. So they sold it and they came to the, came to the you know, to Peter. It says, here's our money. Well, they came individually, but they said, basically, here's our money. Look how great we are. And by the way, did they bring all the money that they just? Now, were they required to bring all the money? Actually, no, but they had made a vow to God saying so. So, yes, they were, but it wasn't like, hey, you have property you have to sell to help the church. They had a choice, but they were lying about what they'd done because they wanted a claim. Sin was coming into the church. It was so, the church was so new, God protected it right away. And what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They died. You have not lied to man, but to God. Wow. Wow. And they died right there. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to do this? Why have you listened to him? You didn't have to bring... You could have given even a portion, just, but you're trying to lie, and you're doing it for pride's sake. God cares for the purity of his church. And the church was at a foundling stage at that point, so he took care of it right away. In our church, we have to see if there's sin that's crept in, and you need to do something about it if it's, if it's something you know about Okay, it's not just up to the pastors and elders. We do our best. We are to guard the flock. But we all own this church. And I'm not talking about this church, but the church. The body of gathered believers. We've got to care for each other. When I hear about a person who goes to another church, and I know they're struggling with sin, here's what I don't do. Oh, it's up to their pastors to do something about it. If they're my friend, even if they go to another church, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? I've got to go to them. And we'll see that more in the future. But here's the deal. We've got to understand we play a major role in the spiritual health and well-being of each other. Oh, I, you know, that's, you know, that's, uh, I don't want to be a judge. Oh, no. no. <laughs> the American mentality is so wrong. Our culture is so wrong at this point. We have to be in each other's business. Not because we're nosy, but because it's, we love each other. Because what does family do? Okay, okay, my family's really, we all have messed up families, but the point is, is that what does God's family do? We care for each other. We must take ownership for each other. A truly caring church pursues strays. He goes on to, what about the person who actually is straying? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Other believers don't despise them. What? We'll get to that. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Does that mean there's guardian angels? The answer is no. But angels do care for the church. They play a part. There's, the church is so precious to God that angels are part of all this. How? I don't know. God, we, don't, we aren't given much more information than that. But there's not guardian angels over each little person. The scriptures don't say that. But they're very, the church is that important. And even, but here he's saying specifically, a specific kind of Christian is important to God. What kind? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So, what is the sheep that's really cared for by God? The one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the, over the 99 that never went astray. Does that mean he doesn't love the other 99? No. But it's just look at his love for a stray that's wandered off, but now he's brought back in his back part of the fold. What does he do? He rejoices. Next week, or it's actually next, we're putting off next week. Next week's our Q&A session. Heads up. Talk more about that later. But the next sermon, we're going to look at the prodigal son. And we're not going to focus on the son so much. We're going to focus on the expectant father. What forgiveness. Wow. And that's what we get to see. So it is not the will of of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So his illustration changes a little bit. What is his illustration now in this section? A shepherd and his sheep. All right. So it's about his love for all of his little ones, about their tendencies to easily stray or be led astray like dumb sheep. How many of you are like a dumb sheep? If you don't raise your hand, it means that you're not reading the Scriptures. He makes it very clear. We can be, we are sheep. How many of you have been easily led astray ever? My hand is up. This is not... How many of you have led others astray? Ah, me too. Ugh. But we understand that we see his particular joy and love for each one, especially we see it when they're returned. Hill's illustration is to point out that we are to have the same heart for those who are going astray. He says that if you don't care for them, you're despising them. It means that you're hating them. First John 2, 9, through 11, 9, through 9 and 11 say this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother actually is still in darkness. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you hate your brother, you despise your brother or sister, you actually are blind and in the darkness, and you're not in the light. Woo-wee! So, what is he saying? What does it mean to despise one of these little ones in this portion in Matthew 18? It's when you don't care that they're gone. Well, that's their choice, you know, that's between them and God, and, you know, I just don't know what to do, or, you know, that's someone else's job, I'll let Chris or, Pat or Patrick or Scott, or, or, you know, I don't know what to say, I would be judging, and, and you know, oh, gosh, it's just so hard, I don't have time for this, I don't know what to say. If any of those things, that, that, that means you're rationalizing your lack of pursuing straying sheep's. I, there's people who have been part of our church over the last few years. There's a couple that we've actually had to exercise in the next passage. And I still try to reach out to them over the months and years. Why? Because they're straying sheep. And we are supposed to be reaching out to them. We've got to care. So the question is, do we notice when someone hasn't been around for a while? Do we expect just the leadership to pursue them? Or do we see that it's our calling to pursue them? Do we even pray for each other during the week? That one gets a little bit more personal, right? Do we even consider that we are part of each other's health and well-being? I pray for you guys, not because I'm your pastor, but because you're my friends. I don't want you guys to struggle. I know you struggle. I struggle. And I don't know individually what you're struggling with. I can't read your minds. I don't live with you every day, but you know what? I know you're human, and I know you're in a world of temptation like I am, and I struggle, so I assume you struggle to some degree. So I pray for you. I pray for your marriages. I pray for your relationships. I pray for you at work. I pray for you at, you know, when you're at play. Whatever you're, because I know that there's temptations to sin. I don't want you to stray, and I want us to grow together, right? And I hope you're doing the same for me. I know you are. So thank you. But let's keep it up. Ephesians 4.25 says, We are members of one another. Hebrews 10.22-25 says this. Let us draw near to God, right? With a true heart and full assurance of faith. We're allowed to come to Him. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about Christians here, okay? Draw near to God. But check this. Let us hold fast... Hold tightly to the confession of our hope. What is the confession? Jesus Christ is God, the only way to heaven, and I I believe in him. Let's hold fast to this confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. But he doesn't stop there. He says, let us hold. That means we we are to together stand for our belief in the Lord Jesus. We need to help each other do that. But listen to verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Loving good deeds, you've heard that passage before. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We belong to each other, we need each other, and we've got to be concerned for how each other is doing. That's why you've got to be in a small group so that you can be open, hey, I'm struggling. Pull one person aside and say, I'm struggling, I need your prayer. Don't hide your sin. Don't, don't, don't. You're only ruining and you're, you're going to be miserable. God said he, you will be. And he said that he will make you more miserable until you repent. Why? Because he loves you. And he's provided a church of other sinners who extend grace and compassion and mercy because we're just as messed up as you are. And we want to help each other. That's why we need small groups. Get in one, please please. A truly caring church is one that has a particular love for each person here and a protective love, but also a pursuing love. Let's pursue each other. I, there's people who haven't been here a while, and I'll try to call them up just to check on them. Like, if there's someone who hasn't been here for like three weeks to a month, I'll try to contact them because I just, is there something going on? Just to know. Not because, oh, you haven't been to church. I'm keeping a list and checking it twice. But because I, I, there's, there's things that happen in life. And, and do you do the same? I know some of you do because you'll ask me, hey, about so-and-so, I try getting hold of them. I'm like, awesome. This is the church that owns each other. Okay, let me speed up. I got to finish up this portion. This is just... The, oh, by the way, this next portion is the one that's real touchy, but we need... I've talked about it before, but let's just briefly run through it to remind ourselves what needs to happen. A truly caring church is a church that confronts sin... And calls people back to righteousness who are stuck in that sin. Okay? Jesus said in Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged by that same standard. You'll be judged. He's talking about self-righteous judging there. Because here he's commanding us to do something. Let's read. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. What? Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We'll talk about that briefly. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We'll talk about what that means. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We'll talk about that too. But before, I always say this, before we start going into pursuing stray sheep, there's a thing that we also have to do to us. Here's what we all, the prerequisites, okay? Before you uh, rescue a stray sheep, you have to do self-evaluation. Is there a log in your own eye? Right? I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna read right through this real quickly. Right? How is your own walk doing? Ask yourself that. Galatians six one and two, Hebrews twelve eleven. Remind yourself that when you confront somebody in their sin, it's a sorrowful event for them, scary for you. But to be confronted with your own sin, oh, hearing criticism maybe, is that easy or hard? It's hard. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 12, 15. It takes great effort, but it's always done for the benefit of the erring believer and the church. Not for your benefit, but for their benefit and for the church's benefit. The point is, according to all these other passages, to bring hope through discipline. God's gift to the church is this process. How do we deal with somebody who's in the body who's stuck in sin? They're ensnared by habitual sin. Not just one. They cussed once. You know, they slammed and you heard them cuss. Oh, oh, church discipline. No, 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 no. We're talking about habitual sin. All right? says, what's the process? Well, Jesus lays it out. You don't have to go read leadership magazines and manuals and all how-tos. Here's what he said, and we follow this in the church. It's part of our church by, not bylaws, our, our uh, teaching points. This is how we do church discipline. We just walk through Matthew 18 and Galatians 6, 1 through 2. The goal is to restore, mend, help, see, succeed, avoid pain and misery. In love, we go with compassion and humility. The goal is for their benefit. And guess what? God will grow you through it. He will. So, first of all, step one, you go, you go and tell it to the elders. Okay, are you what does it say? Go to them privately. Right? Now, some passage or some versions, some Greek manuscripts don't have if a brother sins against you. Okay? And that's the nebulous part. I say, like, if you see sin going on habitually in someone's life, even if it's not against you, I bring in Galatians 6 because it says, hey, brothers, if you have a person who's ensnared in sin, go and confront to one in a spirit of gentleness. So I believe it is not just if they sin against you. If you see and know about firsthand that somebody is ensnared in sin, you got to go to them privately. Why? They're ensnared in sin. They're, they're going to get, if they stay in it, you know what God's going to do to them if they're a Christian? What is God going to do to them? Hebrews 12. Come on. He's going to spank them. Sometimes, not hard, but depending on it, it might get really severe. I, I don't want that for them. I want them to avoid that. Right? I don't want them to fall in the hands of an angry God. I don't want them to get His wrath, His discipline. And I know, I don't want to characterize God as some evil, but here's the deal. He says it'll happen. So a wise person says, if I'm stuck in sin, I don't want that to happen. I better stop my sin. And so when we confront somebody, we're just trying to help them get to that point before God gets them to that point. Because will God get them to that point? Yes, he will. (laughs) I want them to avoid the pain and misery. And I want them to enjoy the, the blessedness of walking with Jesus and being restored to the body. So the first step is go privately. Second step, if you've given time and there's no change, you bring two or three witnesses. And it's not to back you. It's for them as witnesses to hear your charges. Are they biblical? Are they real? What's the evidence of what they're doing? And then hear the other person's reply. And they act as judges in that sense. And if it's actually true and it's a biblical charge, not a preference. If it's a biblical charge, then the two or three witnesses now come together and say, yes, you need to repent. And then there's time given. And there also there's a, very, there's a very clear thing saying, look, we are, at pro- we are at obeying what Jesus said in church discipline right here. It's church discipline and restoration. You're very clear about that. And you're also clear about what the changes should look like. It's not just, oh, we like, don't like your bad attitude. That's a nebulous thing. Well, so what should it be? Well, you have to give concrete, clear paths to restoration, okay? So that's the second step. That's what Jesus says. And if they, you give them time, and also, too, you've got to help them. They're not just, you tell them and you walk away from them. You guys should be helping them. Galatians 6, we've got to help them through this process of change. Galatians 6 says, if a person is caught in sin, go and restore such one. That word restore is also used when a doctor resets a broken bone. So when a bone is broken, it has to be reset. I saw them do this with James Jake's arm when he was young. Oh, it was, ugh, he had to be put out. It was scary. Gosh, my nose got reset. Ugh. But it gets reset. It gets bound up. And then what happens then? Is they pur- Are you ready to walk normally? Do, do, do. No. It takes time. And they need a crutch. Well, you know what the crutch is in God's economy? Us. We help them be restored. Not, hey, go change, and you walk away from them, you jerk. No, we walk with them. Why? Because we love them. They belong to us. They're a sheep just like us. And God's provided us to help them. So step two, tell it, take witnesses. And if they don't change after a period of time, it says tell it to the church. We've added to that two steps in there. Tell it to the church leadership so that we can investigate, contact them, okay? We've added that part just because we want to give as many opportunities for people to repent and be restored before we go to step four. Get to that in just a second. But then the church leadership works with them, and then if there's not change, then we have to go to step four and tell it to the church, and then the church goes to that person, please stop sinning, please repent. And if after a time they don't, then what are you supposed to do according to step four? What did Jesus say? Not Chris Prinzea. What did Jesus say? You actually are supposed to kick them out of the fellowship and you declare them as a tax gatherer and a Gentile. To the Jewish mind, what did that mean? In the kingdom or out of the kingdom? You're making a spiritual statement. Who's making the spiritual statement? The pastors and elders at that final step. The shepherds of the flock have to make that final step and that's why verses 21 and 2 says, look, you have heaven's authority to back you up. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, he's talking about the elders making that final decision. Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. That's a scary thing, you guys. And I do it with all sorts of temerity and, you know, it's a scary thing, but we have to do it. And everyone's in America, we don't like hearing that, do we? Everyone's all looking at me like, ooh, you guys, we have to. Why? Because Jesus said so. We have to do it with all compassion, right? But that's why, and I'm going to jump forward to the last part, the verses on forgiveness. Peter's saying, what if the person who's, you know, this sinning street, what if they sinned against me? How am I supposed to forgive them? And what is Jesus, what is his answer? What is his answer? How often? So after the 490th time you stop? Well, you know that. He's, he's correcting Peter's view. It's you are supposed to be extravagant, abundantly forgiving, always ready, ready to restore and to reclaim and to get them back in the body. Why? Because we are just like them. Why we are all sheep. Why we are the little ones who are humble, dependent, needy, prone to fall, prone to be led astray, prone to lead others astray. That's why and and by the way, isn't that Ephesians 4:32? It says, forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. How much did Jesus forgive you when you became a Christian? All your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sins. Wow. I'm glad we have a forgiving God. And that's what we're going to look at the next sermon. How forgiving, oh my goodness, should make you weep. All that being said... (laughs) Folks, let's commit to being a church that truly cares for each other. A church that owns each other. A church that protects each other. Alert for temptations in our own lives and outside here. A church that cares enough to pursue wayward sheep. A church that cares enough to say something when a sheep is ensnared in sin. A church that is always ready to forgive, reconcile, and restore a repentant sheep. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then uh, we're going to do a little segment here afterwards. But you guys, please hear this. This is not me saying, we are as terrible as a church. No, my goodness. I see it all the time. But we always have to be ready for future problems, and we always have to be admitting we could get better, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us, your amazing love. And while you call us to these great heights of being a, a church that cares and loves each other. We know we fall, fall far short, but yet you, 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 you empower us to grow and, and to change and to get better at this. So, Lord, I pray that uh, we, would, we would take this to heart because, God, there's a world that needs to see this. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the peace you've given us with you and peace with each other. Oh, how deep your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.